0: As runners, cyclists, and triathletes, you no doubt come across new information about nutrition for your sport all the time. And it can come from anywhere. It comes from fellow athletes, from coaches, an article you saw online, and of course, this podcast. But how do you filter that information and decide if it's a valid, useful, and most importantly, information that's worth implementing yourself? Today, we're joined by Dr. Dana Lees, a sports dietitian who's constantly asked this question with the athletes that she works with is going to give us a framework to use when you encounter new information about nutrition for your sport that you can use to decide whether it's worth pursuing or not. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin
1: and I'm Steph Gaskell.
0: We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimize their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their ride or run, in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers for. So we'll take that question, break it down, and invite a guest expert or an athlete or coach to add their unique perspective. Today, it is episode 61, How Can I Decipher Sports Nutrition Information, with our special guest, Dr. Dana Lease. Before we get to Dana, though, Steph, how are you going this week?
1: I'm going good, Al, going good. Been house hunting, trying to actually purchase a house now, so that's been a bit of fun and learning experience for for us and then yeah it took water on our first walk our little pup she's now allowed you know out in public so um so that's been a, a bit of fun now she can annoy her brother out in public and uh yeah that's that's about about it what about you
0: well i finally got that five-hour sodium study submitted for review oh which is exciting cool. yeah yeah so it'll be a little while longer before it gets actually published but um yeah the, yep. the train's on the track, so to speak, which is nice. So, yeah, that's all going well. I've got another one I've got to work on at the moment that's uh, sitting there. And then gearing up our first participant for this new hydration study is actually coming in tomorrow for their initial testing. So, yeah, awesome. getting exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess that's a shout out there for anyone that is interested yeah. in uh, running on a, on a treadmill and getting in some, some good data uh yep. Reach out to Alan.
0: Yes. So yeah, any Melbourne-based runners or triathletes who are interested doing a bit of running in the heat over winter, which might be good training if you've got a hot race coming up in the not too distant future. Hint, hint. Anyone going to Kona, for example? <laughs> uh, and then we're looking at a specific, yeah, a hydration strategy before exercise to improve hydration when you start exercise and whether it works or not. So yeah, you'll get heaps of data around your hydration, around your sweat sweat losses that kind of thing and the gut side of things as well so not the the full monty of gut assessment that you get in some of our other studies but you will get some of that feedback as well so yeah nice little study and yeah i think it'll give us some really good practical answers around some stuff that no doubt we can talk about on this podcast in the future
1: yeah yep yep and social media we've had a bit of action now
0: yeah yeah i just wanted to Pick up on on one part of that. We don't do a lot of the sort of the social media stuff on the podcast so much anymore. But we did post a, a story on Instagram last week around the environmental impact of sports nutrition. Obviously, we had a couple of podcasts about that recently, and particularly around the the role of ruminant animals. So. Cows, goats, and sheep, basically, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and, and that side of things. And we did have a, a couple of responses when we posted a couple of the graphs looking at greenhouse gas emissions per hundred grams of food product produced, essentially, that showed, you know, greenhouse gas emissions from beef and, and lamb being, you know, way out in front of pretty much everything else in terms of the, the amount of emissions. And we had a few emotive responses, I'll say, to that. Um, now, that, that research was actually from Oxford University, part of a study that, that we mentioned on the podcast that looks at the environmental impact of different protein sources. Now, some people sort of questioned that research saying, well, grain-fed versus pasture-fed or grass-fed beef are completely different, or that cattle grazing actually sequesters carbon into the soil, and then questioning where that data came from. So firstly, that data was not grain-fed cattle only. It was actually a world-weighted average that accounts for the amount of beef globally that is grain-fed versus pasture or grass-fed, so it actually does represent, I guess, if you like, the average steak worldwide that you can buy across the entire planet, given that a lot of the planet eats grain-fed beef and a lot of the planet eats pasture-fed beef. It's sort of the the weighted average of those. Uh, On the topic of sequestering carbon into the soil and, and the role of grazing cattle, in that, and an international team of researchers from a bunch of universities across the UK, Europe, uh, and also the CSIRO in here in Australia, which is a government funded scientific organisation for those uh, outside of Australia who don't know what uh, CSIRO is, they actually investigated this back in 2018 and published a very comprehensive report around the role of grazing and, and carbon sequest- sequestering. I guess that's probably the, I can't, don't know yeah. my tenses for sequesting. Um, but they concluded that the sequestering of carbon by grazing cattle uh, is actually commonly overestimated, both in livestock industry funded research and because of a lack of consistency in farming practices. So there probably are pockets of excellence in farming where you do sequester more soil, but they don't tend to represent the majority of beef on the supermarket shelf, even for grass fed beef. They also noted that the sequestering of carbon by grazing is not permanent, so that carbon can be released back out into the atmosphere within a few years. Also that much of the grazing land that potentially could sequester carbon is already saturated with that carbon, and so it can't take up much more into the soil anyway. And also that the methane and other emissions from cattle, whether it's grain or grass-fed, more than offsets any of those sort of benefits that might occur from sequestering carbon. Now, I did a quick little Google search because obviously with with research, there's often counter arguments to that research. So I thought I'll just have a quick little look online at that. And most of the criticism of that research has come from, not surprisingly, the livestock industry themselves. And most of those arguments point to, well, what about these farming practices? What about these farming practices? And again, they tend to be those little pockets of excellence in farming that, yeah, they might be better in terms of sequestering carbon, but they're not Representative, I guess, of the majority of farming practices, even in pasture fed animals. So the report sort of concludes by agreeing that moving certainly from grass fed, uh, sorry, from grain fed to pasture fed cattle would definitely be a beneficial step and has many benefits for many different reasons, many of them environmental, but that grazing animals, reducing greenhouse gases isn't one of them when looking at the industry as a whole and that to meet our goals around reducing carbon emissions, that the number of ruminant animals worldwide needs to be reduced regardless of any sort of excellent practices in terms of agriculture and farming. So yeah, that was pretty much what we found when we had a look into that. But if you do have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, uh, not necessarily about farming because we're not farming experts by <laughs> any means, but if you have a nutrition question for your sport that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so let's get stuck into what we're going to talk about today, Alan. So we're up to episode 61
0: Yes. So our question is, how can I decipher sports nutrition information with our special guest, Dr. Dana Lees, who's returning to the podcast. She was previously on the podcast looking at continuous glucose monitors earlier on this year. But Dana is a sports dietitian. She's both a researcher with the University of California, Davis, but also a practitioner working with Elite Sport, and she is based in California, although she's from Canada originally. So she's worked previously with the Canadian Sport Institute and worked with their Olympic team in the lead-up to the London Olympics. But currently she works as a sports dietitian with the Golden State Warriors in the NBA and also in professional cycling. So previously, when we last spoke to her, which she was with the Israel Premier Tech men's cycling team. But she's actually changed across. She talks about that in this interview. She now works with the EF Tibco SVP women's pro cycling team who are currently doing the Tour de France Femme X Swift, which is just finishing off as we record this. So she's working there in, in professional cycling as well as in basketball with the NBA and worked in a whole bunch of other sports over time and also been a researcher so someone who's very good at understanding research and interpreting that into practical messages but then working directly with athletes that are asking questions on you know things that they've seen online or heard from other athletes and how to decipher that and and work out whether that's valid information and whether it's useful and relevant to them and and what they should do with that information so yeah originally we sort of contacted Dana Looking to look at a specific issue around gluten-free diets and whether runners, cyclists or triathletes would benefit from a gluten-free diet, even if they don't have celiac disease. But very much the discussion with Dana then went down the direction of you know how to decipher information more broadly, whether it's about gluten-free diets or not. We do talk about gluten free diets in this interview. We use that sort of as a working example, but Dana really gives us this broader overall framework, which sort of fits nicely and and probably expands on episode six, which was around, you know, why is nutrition so confusing with Dr. Tim Crow? where we sort of talked about you know, how to develop a bit of a BS detector for information online. I guess this probably takes that a step further about how you might then implement the information. So even if it's not BS, is it still actually relevant to you and, and whether it's worth going to the effort or potentially spending the money if it's a supplement or a particular dietary pattern that requires spending some money to buy different foods and that sort of thing to, to implement yourself?
1: Mm. Excellent. Let's uh, get stuck into it.
0: Yep, let's do it.
1: Dana-Lise,
2: welcome back to The Long Munch. Yeah, thanks so much for for having me on again. I guess I wasn't too horrible the last time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not at all, not at all. That was a very fun episode. So, yeah, last time we spoke to you was back in episode 33A which was, can a continuous glucose monitor improve my performance nutrition? And you were joined with the lovely Dr. David Martin. What's been keeping you busy in the sports nutrition world since then? I'm sure there's been a lot.
2: Yeah, there's actually been quite a lot. I think like, you know, like a lot of us, when we go through different iterations of our career, you know, later on, reach a point where you're like, okay, it's time to kind of reinvent what I'm doing and how how I'm going about it. You also get more tired when you're a mom and you're working various contracts, etc. But I've always had a, like an entrepreneurial drive that I never really quite committed to taking the risk for. So we have a new company called Performance Nutrition Professionals and what we're doing is designing training for practitioners. So trying to really give practitioners really advanced skill sets in performance nutrition, like knowledge, but also like the hands-on skills. And then we're also building out several other pieces to this training and mentorship company. You know, I think we're really going to shift the needle in the U.S. with regards to just that really elite performance nutrition strategy that you see. You know, you see a lot more, I'd say, in Australia, in Canada, U.K. The U.S. is really, it's a really vast, huge country. And there's a lot of different, a lot of variability to the way you can become a, a sport dietitian. Sometimes there's a little bit of washout of really depth of knowledge. So we're trying to, trying to, you know, really shift the needle on that. Yeah, yeah. And so
1: doing all of that, do you have any time to work with your two NBA teams that you were working with, which was Golden State Warriors and Sacramento Kings?
2: Yeah, I'm still with the Warriors. So last year 2022 NBA champions. So yeah, it was a fantastic fantastic experience and I'm still working with the Warriors. This year didn't quite make it as far, but that's that's part of the cycle. You can't stay at the top of the mountain all the time. You got to go yeah. back down and climb back up again. And I've actually yeah, still working in cycling. It's I find I I can't get rid of cycling ever. I really love working in that population. It's just really where you can measure the impact of nutrition like on every pedal stroke essentially. So I've swapped over and started working with the women's team a little bit. So EF Tipco SVB. And yeah, they're, I mean their man, their owner is California based, but the team is mostly, you know, obviously racing in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And what about research? What's been keeping you busy in in this area? Yeah, still a little bit involved with research, but yeah, at a point now where I get to, you know, oversee and you know provide insight and review and stuff, but not, you know, obviously not in the lab, which I which I miss, yeah. but you just cannot do it all. Mm-hmm. So I with still involved with Monash a little bit. So one of Rachel Scriven's co-supervisors with her PhD work in the FODMAP space. And so yeah. with you Steph and me, now here's the third generation of building on <laughs> building on our work. And yeah. then still we have one study that um is quite delayed because of COVID, but we have a study in the bar lab at UC Davis that is comparing whey versus collagen and a fermented vegan collagen. And it's an exercise study, exercise feeding study and measuring collagen synthesis. So that's all been done. We're just doing the final, or they're just doing the final analysis. So that'll be an interesting study to, to, to see the findings of. And there's females and males in that study, which is pretty mm-hmm. awesome for for a study as well. So that's part of the reason why it's taken longer as they've done a really great job recruiting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep.
2: Yep. And so back in
1: episode 6A, we spoke to Timothy Crow about the question, why is nutrition so confusing? As someone who's worked both in nutrition science research and in communicating messages to athletes, why do you think sports nutrition is so confusing?
2: Yeah, that's I think part of the reason I'd say if you if you look at the amount of sport nutrition or performance nutrition, sports science publications that have grown in the last you know, 15, 20 years, we've gone from about you know 300 publications a year to about 3000 last year. So, you know, when you open up the floodgates like that in any situation, there is a level of depth and quality that that gets washed out you know, there's been the introduction of predatory journals that are, you know, publishing online, really low quality studies with, you know, basically zero peer review. Um, It's more of a check the boxes process rather than like getting an authentic expert peer review. So I think that there's a lot more information getting out to the general public. But then this information is also, I think that's confounded with, when people are getting their information, they're not even reading, not necessarily even reading a full article, or if it's an editorial or, you know, a magazine or newspaper article, it's this comprehensive idea or comprehensive study summarized into an infographic or hundred and something characters. And the details really get left out. You get a, you get handed a, a yes or no conclusive message. And on the receiving end, the way we're getting, the way we've become kind of accustomed to getting information, it leaves little little room for questioning or judgment or critical thinking. It's just a sort of instantaneous, here's your message, read it, believe it and move on. And I think probably the third reason is the number, I think, you know, again, where we're getting information, social media, you know, this prevalent people communicating sport nutrition a lot of the people who are really, really in the forefront of this space for the general public or the general athlete aren't necessarily true experts. I'd say, you know, the leading experts in sport nutrition, if they're really a leading expert, honestly, they're they're working with athletes. They're running research. They don't have the time to generate massive social media content. And even I mentioned Jen and I have started a new company we struggle to get a single post out five days a week that meets, you know, our quality standards, which honestly are not high, but there's no quality control in social media. And sport nutrition has also kind of turned into more of an entertainment than an education. And, you know, it's it's a small handful of groups that are producing really evidence-based high quality performance nutrition content that leads athletes to read further. I mean, my sport science would be a, a great example, askers, askers stuff. Gatorade Sports Science Institute, and then obviously the Long Munch podcast. But there's you know very authentic, you know, researchers and practitioners that are able to generate the content to keep people keep keep people's attention. And probably probably like a human's nest humans are a bit instinctual. And it's you know, instinct is liable to error. And often Sport nutrition messaging is, is based on you know quick quick fixes. And as you know, as humans, we kind of grab on to those quick fixes and stories or antidotes. And it's human nature to decide if these stories resonate or not and then act instinctually. Part of that's linked to bias. Part of it is just, you know, as a human, of course I want a quick fix. I'm gonna be drawn to anything that's gonna make me faster in, in a week. So yeah, those would probably be some of the, some of the reasons why it's so confusing. Social media, I think has made things easier to access, but also opened the floodgates to a wide range of depth and quality of information. Yeah,
1: And Alan and I often have a little bit of a rant on things that come along in, in sports nutrition. What's been the most outrageous example that you can think of or that's really gotten you really fired up if we can have a listen to one of your rants?
2: (laughs) How how long do you have? (laughs) So Jen, as I've mentioned, my business partner, she absolutely has, she literally has like a file of video rants. She's recorded but really hasn't had the the gusto to publish some of them because some of them are probably a little edgy. But I, I'd say like, I think after, you know, being in the field for, for 20 years, I, I've i gotten less worked up about, you know, wacko dietary ideas and wacko claims. Like a lot of times it just kind of just goes by me. I don't get as worked up, but I've, I've realized through just, as I mentioned, like I've had the opportunity to work in Australia and Canada and the UK and Europe and now the US. And I honestly... Feel more empathy about people spreading misinformation because they literally are so wrapped up in their own ideas that they have zero that have zero scientific backing that they're missing out on so much learning and growth. So I think it's not necessarily the the ideas are messaging, but I, I feel kind of empathetic for these people that are so convinced in this one diet or this one method that they're yeah, they are missing out on a lot of a lot of opportunity for growth and learning, but they can make some some really sick reels, that's for sure, that keep people watching. But it's more to do, you know, I think what really gets me fired up is when I find registered dietitians getting their information from product or industry reps, like that's where they're getting their leading edge research from is from product reps. And, you know, I fully recognize that the the sport nutrition industry is very much part of our, our like little triad of research, practice and industry, it all works together. And I've worked in industry, I fully understand the role of industry and really appreciate it, but it's not where you should be getting your your leading edge strategy for for your athletes. And I think the second part that gets me fired up is, is again, in in our practice field is, you know, nutritionists or, or dietitians not really understanding or appreciating the physiology behind the strategies that they're using and using really blanket recommendations based on an infographic conclusion, you know, this is of one of the reasons why we've built performance nutrition professionals is really to help teach critical thinking and scientific skepticism. It's not something you really always get in school. I wouldn't say I developed it through my dietetic education. It was something that I had to be aware of and then go back to graduate school to really, really refine. But I think we need to do a better job as a collective at being scientific skeptic, scientific skeptics, but also communicating, communicating this. And I think that's something that as, as you know, more research minded, I'm not that great at doing. And I think this might be a little bit, maybe a little bit might piss a couple of people off, but I think the second thing that really gets me fired <laughs> up is the use of bodies to sell ideas or products. We have enough issues with eating disorders in sport. It only makes it worse when we see allied health professionals making energy balls on an Instagram video with the camera perfectly tilted on their tight tank top. I just, I really, inc- I think it's part of just the evolution of, of social media and I'm old, maybe I'm a little bit of a prude, but I just like, as an allied health professional, I think we need to make sure we're being reflected as professionals. And that's sort of, when you're starting to make videos like that, I would take a, take a quick look back and maybe ask yourself, is this how, you know, I want our profession recognized and also just looking at other allied health professionals jen had a good example she was like would i choose a pediatrician that advised on how to feed my kid in who was talking in a bikini probably not so i think that just remembering from a nutrition perspective that we need to maintain that professional that professional image from a practitioner perspective
0: yeah yeah for sure
2: so yeah those are probably my two things that fire me up and honestly it's more to do with with performance nutrition practice standards mm.
0: Yeah. So let's switch focus now to athletes themselves, and I guess mm-hmm. arming them with some tools and skills that they can use when they're looking at things online to have a bit of, a, I guess, a BS detector, for a lack of a better word, to try and mm-hmm. have that, as you said, those critical thinking skills and, and working through that when they see something about nutrition online going, well, is this useful information? Is it relevant to me? Is it scientifically based, et cetera, et cetera. So if, if we're an athlete and we hear the best you know, the next best thing out there for our performance is some sort of special diet. And we'll we'll go through an Mm -hmm. example based on your PhD shortly in terms of gluten-free diets, but it could be low FODMAP, it could be keto, it could be a supplement. Our last episode was about magnesium, be another example of Mm -hmm. that. And so there's all this information flying at you saying, this is good, this is great. Look, this person did it and look how well they did, all that kind of thing. How should athletes think about kind of deciphering this information and working their way through it?
2: yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think sometimes it's hard for us. We're so in the space. It's a lot of this is second nature that I've sometimes had to remind myself of like where somebody who does not have that background is coming at. And I give myself the example of the whole world of stock market, investing, vesting equity options. That whole space for me, is a completely black box or it used to be and it would just sound like gibberish and if somebody told me something was great to do i would go and do it and so i have to sometimes bring myself into that mindset to to develop like to put myself in someone else's shoes when it comes to nutrition science now i've had friends and and colleagues help me out with some of this stock market and stuff and i'm not a millionaire overnight, yet. But I also decided to work in sports. That may never happen. But so I would say I try to get athletes to have when they're approaching any sort of dietary topic. And let's say if it was gluten free diets, of first looking at themselves. And with if they're looking at like, hey, someone's telling them, you know, you should follow a gluten free diet. It's worked great for me. I've lost weight. I'm healthier. Um, I don't have the GI symptoms. I'm um, I would first get the athlete to be like, Hey, what are your actionable outcomes? A lot of times we tend to jump on diets or tools or tech with no actual measurable outcome. Not everything is measurable, but from an athlete perspective, try to think about what are your gaps? So if you have your yearly training plan, what are your goals and what are your gaps for reaching those goals? do the claims for this diet or do the outcomes of this diet really align with your priorities or gaps? If it's like, okay, if you go gluten-free, you're going to be, you're going to be healthier because you're, because your other colleague, your other training partners say they're healthier. Well, what did, what are they measuring to be healthier? Like, it's just a lot of, a lot of strategies and these diets are really vague. And you you feel like you're healthier, but what exactly does that mean for you? So I think really before you engage in any sort of diet, tool, tech, what are your gaps and what are your priorities for your overall, you know, life, quality of life, but then your training as well. The second step would be taking a look at the type of information. Okay. So you've, you're like, yeah, you know, I do get GI symptoms. I am feeling, you know, pretty tired a lot of the time it could be any number of things but what type of information is this coming from okay i'm interested now this could be something that helps me this information this it resonates with me so step 2 i would look at what kind of study it is so if it's a story somebody's story or an anecdotal type article i would try to recognize the bias in that so if you're if someone's telling you a story and you're buying into that idea, you can't argue with someone's story, it's their story. So it's really hard to argue a story, but that's a really great way to convince somebody that their idea is right. So it is good to use sometimes, but just being aware that, okay, if this, if what you're reading is based on a meta-analysis or a randomized control trial, where you have basically two groups doing a placebo and an intervention, and then those groups cross over and nobody knows what intervention is what. That's a randomized controlled trial. And those are more of your gold standard type studies. Other studies like a parallel design where you have two groups doing different interventions at the same time. Usually we'll have a lot more people involved in the study and it's done for different reasons. And then case studies or our data from one person. So these other types of studies are really good for informing research and practice but they don't have the same level of level of of evidence they're still good for at certain points in our scientific journey but i would say you know if it's just a case study or kind of a retrospective data study where it's a whole bunch of data over time good for informing but not necessarily as gold standard as a meta analysis or a randomized control trial step three i would be like definitely now okay So've I've thought about the actionable outcomes of this of this gluten-free diet. My friend told me that it's gonna help me in these ways. Yeah, that resonates with me. Yeah, this study did come from they did a randomized controlled trial. So yeah, I'm gonna look at my own bias now and look a little bit of, at yourself in your life. How are you influenced? Who do you, who do you look to for influence um, ideas about training and nutrition? Who do you look through on your social media feeds? Just kind of doing some self reflection on how your bias might influence the outcomes if you try this diet, or how you go about interpreting the information you're reading. If your you know your cycling group is all over this gluten free diet and you got dropped on the climb last week that you don't usually get dropped. Well, heck yeah, I'm interested in this diet. They're all doing it. They got faster than me. So what are they doing that I'm not? Yeah, I'm going to try it. So I think just realizing the context of your life and your own bias and how that might influence your experience with any any idea or, or diet. So the fourth piece would be just, you know, digging a little bit more if you really want to try to develop a little more scientific rigor, Looking at the study details, who was the study done on? What was the population? How many subjects? If it was a, you know, a random sample, that's better than having a group of college-level recreational uh, football players, for example. That's football, American football, but whatever, any football. So looking at the population, if it's not the same population that has nothing similar to you, there are some studies that really the outcomes are going to be very different depending on the population. If somebody's completely untrained or very recreationally trained and you're a high level athlete, you might not have those same outcomes because you're already have developed some of these physiological systems really, really well. And looking at, I mean, some of the dietary control pieces are good to, to look at, but also just identifying a little bit more about yourself too, in this sort of looking at the study details of, of your eating habits. And if you have a history of like restrictive eating behaviors being aware of that too, of like trying all these new diets could actually introduce unnecessary restrictive eating. That's sort of a side piece. But then back to step one is my, like step five is basically return on investment is you want to get fitter, faster, stronger, where are your biggest gaps? And will this diet or this supplement help close those back gaps? And if you're really not sure, then I would definitely like hire a professional or look for really good summaries on, you know, as I mentioned, there's some GSSI, My Sports Science, Long Munch Podcast of course has very, very evidence-based speakers on there. So you know if you don't know, ask a professional. So yeah, overall I'd say is it actionable? Can you are the actionable outcomes, are they like measurable? Do they apply to you and your gaps and your and your strategies? Two is the type of information and what kind of study it is. Three would be to look at your own bias and just reflect on how your bias could interpret your experience with whatever strategy. Then if you want to get a little more scientific rigor, look at the study details, population, interventions. And then step five is return on investment, prioritize stuff. And I think I I try to make sure that I, I discuss that return on investment and priority piece with athletes, because if you look at the athlete now. There's these ex- internal stressors, but then there's all these external stressors from like the six different watches we have on collecting data, our power meters, our headpieces in the helmets. There's so much external data coming in and all of that is additive to that, to that, to that load. And I think it's important to really prioritize which nutrition tools you use how you're collecting that data, even little things like, okay, can you take pictures of your food for the next couple of days? I try to minimize how much we do that and only do it when it's absolutely necessary because it's still another stressor that might not be a big deal over two days, but over time, if you're, you know, following this gluten-free diet for a few weeks and you're traveling all over Europe racing, that could be really, really additive of a stressor and actually compromise your performance through just load and stress rather than having a beneficial impact on, on your quality of life and performance. Yeah. Bit long winded, but that's what I think.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm going to try and summarize. I've, I've written down as you were talking, Dana, the kind of the key five points. So let's see if I've, I've got this right and then we'll maybe move on and have a look at a specific example of this from, from your PhD. So I guess question one this bit of information's come into me. The first thing I'm going to ask is Is this even relevant to my situation?
2: Yep.
0: And if it is, and I apply it, is it practical in my situation, my lifestyle, my sport, et cetera, et cetera? Is the information actionable? I can actually do something with this, or is it just some kind of theoretical information that's nice to know, but actually, other than that, it's it's not going to really do much for me. So that's step one. Step two, where's this information coming from? What's the source of the information, the quality of that information? Step three, how might my own personal biases change how I interpret this information? Mm-hmm. Do I need to sort of try and take myself out of this situation and take a bit of a helicopter view, if you like, of, of mm-hmm. that? Or maybe get an objective opinion from someone else? And then part four is if you want to dig into that information in a little bit more detail, particularly if it's got a research background to it. And what I've written here, which is sort of what you described is an acronym that we use when we do literature reviews, which is PICO, which is looking at the participant in the study. So if it's all males and I'm a female athlete, is that relevant to me or vice versa? If it's all master's athletes and I'm 18 years old, is that relevant to me? If they are all Olympic athletes and I'm not an Olympic athlete, is that relevant to me? So that's the participant. The intervention. So what did they actually do? Again, is that possible in my scenario? Um, affordable, practical, etc. Comparison. What did they actually compare it to? Is there a genuine placebo in this study, whatever it is? And then the outcome you know, did they measure an outcome that is actually real world outcome that I would actually be interested in? So did they measure performance? Did they measure some aspect of health that's important to me or relevant to my situation, as opposed to, I don't know, the change in some, you know, obscure enzyme within the mitochondria or something where, you know, what does that actually mean for me? And then finally, as you said, you know, the return on investment thinking about this in the bigger picture, this might be something that improves performance by, you know, zero point five percent. Or I could just spend an extra four hours training and probably improve my performance eight percent or something like that. And which one's actually easier, cheaper, more practical, etc. What's yeah, where 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 am I better spending my time and my money?
2: Yeah, perfect. And the last part, hire a professional if you're not sure.
0: (laughs) Yep. Perfect. All right. So let's move on and have a look at this in the context of some of the research that you did, which was around gluten-free diets. And you did this in your PhD here -hmm. in Australia, in Tasmania, quite a few years ago now. So taking a step back, I guess, what was the, obviously there was a particular question that you were trying to answer here or an, an unresolved question. So what was the, I guess, the question that you were specifically trying to answer? Was it the fact that all these people were following gluten-free diets, but no one seemed to know why?
2: Yeah, I think like a lot of research, observing what's happening in the athletic world and in the athlete world drives a lot of research questions. A lot of times athletes are doing stuff ahead of the research and it's it'll, sometimes it's working. And we find out later on through a series of research that, yeah, there's a reason, there's a physiological mechanism So similar with the whole gluten-free diet questions we were looking at around 2011-12, we just had a ton of athletes. I was working with the Canadian Sport Institute at that time. So that was coming right up to the London Olympic Games. And we had a ton of athletes that were just swapping over to a gluten-free diet. And we didn't really have any any rationale that there should be a larger need for a gluten-free diet in the athletic population there wasn't really any, anything outside of a clinical need for gluten-free. There was not really any, any, any clinical or evidence-based to, to base this on, but, you know, athletes going into the games, they really believe this is helping them. You're not gonna, you're not gonna argue that at that point in time, you're gonna, you're gonna accommodate it. But, you know, with this huge uptick and people jumping on the gluten-free bandwagon. Maybe there was something we didn't understand. We know that there's this there's all of the mechanisms involved in basically changes in GI physiology and a lot of sport situations, particularly endurance sport, maybe, you know, this chronic kind of stress on the gut is creating a more susceptible a, a athlete or a gut that's more susceptible to be in not tolerating gluten or the sort of immune barrier is a lot more compromised. So there's more of these proteins getting through the immune barrier. So we sort of started, you know, thinking about, okay, you know, there might be a rationale here for athletes that have guts that are kind of in a continual state of various levels of injury. Maybe they're, maybe they're more susceptible to some of these, you know, typical dietary culprits, I guess you can call them. So yeah, that, that research kind of started with, Hey, we have all these athletes who are not celiac going on a gluten-free diet, the whole non-celiac gluten sensitivity or non-celiac wheat sensitivity, that area was still quite young. It was still in its infancy from having some, having any sort of biomarker to kind of determine if somebody had what's you know clinically known as non-celiac wheat sensitivity now. So that area was still really vague. So, you know, a lot of athletes would be saying, oh, I think I have non-celia gluten sensitivity because I have, you know, less GI symptoms. I feel like I have less GI symptoms when I don't eat gluten. So we did run, you know, a double-blind crossover exercise and feeding study with everything, you know, controlled. And we didn't find any differences in GI symptoms between the gluten-free and gluten-containing diet. Didn't find any differences between marker of intestinal injury. We used a a biomarker called IFAB. And we also measured inflammatory markers, uh, cytokines. And we found, yeah, we didn't find anything different between the groups. But we didn't, at that point, control for FODMAPs. So that was where the whole idea of integrating this low FODMAP strategy or, or reducing sort of FODMAP load for athletes came into the picture and that was, you know, some great discussions with Monash early on. And yeah, it's pretty exciting that yeah, Steph has, has driven that forward. And we've been able to learn a lot from that first study.
0: Yeah. And so I guess if we think about this now from the athlete's perspective, so obviously there's been a body of work now done in this area over the last sort of 10 years or so. So if an athlete reads in a book or sees on social media or something like a coach or even a nutritionist. Sometimes I've seen books, nutrition books for athletes, some pretty prominent ones telling them that they should eat wheat-free or gluten-free diets. Yes. And they're sort of saying, okay, there's this information coming at me saying that endurance athletes should eat gluten-free diets. So I guess Mm -hmm. that first step coming back to your, your five points before, you know, is this relevant to me? So I guess in that case, the first question would be, you know, well, what do I stand to gain from a gluten- free diet? Is there a problem that needs solving?
2: Yeah, the first part I would I would look at, you know where where are your gaps? From your perspective as an athlete, where are your performance and health gaps? Do you have do you have trouble fueling? Well, in that case, I might be I might think, well, if I'm restricting this whole really a f- kind of concentrated fuel source, is that actually gonna help me or hinder performance? You know, I guess in looking at some of the claims with a gluten-free diet, oh, it's healthier. You know, I might reflect on, I'm, I'm actually, I eat a really varied diet. I feel pretty healthy. I recover well. I feel like I'm an energy balance. Maybe this isn't gonna do anything for me, but if you're an athlete that, man, you struggle with GI symptoms. Your iron's low, you struggle with GI symptoms. Sometimes you can't finish a training session because your GI symptoms are so bad. I wouldn't necessarily jump to gluten-free, but it might be on my radar for a strategy that could potentially reduce the severity and incidence of of GI issues. But I I try to encourage athletes not to jump on the first thing that they think is a solution, because there's all these other pieces that change when you change your diet.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I wonder in this case too, like A lot of these kind of discussions, I think, and we talked a little bit about this in the context of magnesium in our last episode as well, is that there's solutions being offered for problems that the person doesn't actually have. Yes. Like like we talked last week about a lot of people take magnesium, but they actually don't really know why they're taking magnesium. It's just kind of like, well, everyone takes it or it's good for recovery, but it doesn't like it's really as you said vague that like they don't define what recovery is or what specific aspect of mm-hmm. recovery magnesium is supposed to help with and and i think the same with gluten-free you know as you said it's healthier well what does that actually mean and mm-hmm. why do you think that you're not healthy as well so sometimes there's that misconception of you know unless you're eating like 25 kilos of vegetables and like lean game meat every day you're not quote unquote healthy and yeah. that's what healthy is so it's a it's a a warped definition of health to some degree as well
2: as a reader and a listener you know you read you know this information about what what is healthier it makes you feel constantly inadequate like i'm not doing enough to be healthy oh i need to Mm. to be gluten-free now if i want to be healthy of course i want to be healthy so i think yeah just it makes it you know makes you feel like you're never quite doing enough and then that can also fuel a lot of inadvertent um, restrictive eating behaviors in the end too
0: yep absolutely Yeah. Okay. And so then the next part, moving on to part two, which is sort of the source and quality of information. So someone sees this information that they should be going gluten free, but it's coming from social media or from a coach, or it's just a comment or something like Mm -hmm. that. At this stage, there really isn't much information. And so the source of the information, you know, it's not, I mean, there might be some sort of scientific information about it Mm -hmm. behind it, but we don't know. You probably need to dig a little bit further at this stage and then look at the quality of that information. And that's where you might have to go and do a bit of looking online, as you said, whether that's, you know, for some people, the the academic or the scientific literature might be sort of beyond their skill set in terms of interpreting. And that's yeah. where they might have to go to the magazines, the websites, the blogs, the podcasts, that sort of thing. And I guess in that case, it's then having a look at who is presenting that information? How is it presented? That kind of thing, rather than being able to go through and find journal articles that might even be behind paywalls that they mm-hmm. can't access anyway, yeah. um, or or they just don't understand them when they try and read them. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I think I think we're doing a better job now, um, of having really good information easily accessible. And I honestly, again, have to credit Gatorade Sports Science Institute. I know you like hear like, oh, Gatorade. well what, what like that's a huge, huge company. Of course it's going to be biased. No, they have an incredibly evidence-based website area that does a fantastic job summarizing the latest research on all the most topical areas for athletes and for practitioners. Similarly to you guys, you guys have done a fantastic job just pulling out some of the most pertinent topics and getting, you know, leading speakers in these areas to help share information So I'd say if you're, you know, if you want to try to dig in a little deeper and find out, Hey, is this, does this actually make sense? Or is this just a one-off comment? You know, you can go to, you know, GSSI sports science website. You can go to askers, my sports science. And a lot of times there will be a blog. There'll be that blog will be linked to three or four evidence-based research articles. So that'll give you a little more, a little more sense of if this concept or a gluten-free diet for example is something that is appropriate for you or not and a little more context about the depth of that information.
0: Yep okay and in terms of the next point which was around the sort of personal biases how would you see that playing out maybe for I don't know a triathlete or a cyclist or a runner who's Looking at this information about gluten free diet saying it makes them either healthier or perform better or something like that, but they're Mm -hmm. they've got this information there. They think it's reasonably good quality. Maybe they're not quite one hundred percent sure. How does the personal bias side of things now play out?
2: Yeah, I think that's where we get a little, a little, little psychological, a little philosophical as well. Of you know, looking, reflecting on how you're influenced. So when you are you the type of person who is really like you jump on something right away. I'm that way. If somebody is like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. I'll be like all over it right away. Or are you somebody who's very slow to make decisions, you know, goes through all the scenarios before you make a decision? So I think just do a little bit of reflection on how you go about making decisions or jumping on the bandwagon. So I think just a little awareness of how you make decisions and how you're influenced. And then looking at your own bias in terms of, what, what, what influences your decision? Is it, you know, if you have a group of cycling friends, like I mentioned, that are all on a gluten-free diet, are you going to be the only person who's like, no, that's completely BS. Like you guys are dumb. Or are you going to kind of roll with and be like, oh yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm going to do that with them. So just kind of, you know, reflecting a bit on how your own bias and your own context can, actually really influence, you know, your experience and even how you interpret what you're reading. And I encourage people to like, before you make a decision about something, give yourself 24, 48 hours before you make a strong decision. It's like what I have to tell myself with shopping. If you still want it in 24 hours, Mm -hmm. you can go back and you can click one click buy on Amazon. But I think it also helps, helps me personally with decision making as well with with just having that time to reflect of like, try not to make a decision or opinion, form your opinions and just instantaneously take a couple of days and then revisit those before you decide to make any major dietary changes or, you know, $300 worth of supplements. Cause you thought this is going to, someone told you, this is going to help you with your performance.
0: Mm, yeah. Okay. And then if we look into the information itself, so we decide we are going to dive into sort of the academic literature and look at that. So, in terms of the stuff that you've done, and using the gluten free example again, so someone's looking at is this relevant to me in terms of age, in terms of sex, in terms of you know my level in the sport, all that kind of thing. What 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 information do we have at the moment around gluten free diets? Which groups would you say we have good information for, and which groups do we not really know much about at all?
2: Yeah, I think we have a lot more, a lot more clinical information now on diagnosing celiac disease, non-celiac wheat sensitivity. So I think in regards to the gluten-free diet area, I try to steer athletes to more of a clinical pathway first before making you know big dietary decisions based on sort of your own opinion. So I will try to take a bit of a clinical pathway because you do have some some gastro that, you know, maybe seem to get exacerbated by exercise quite possible you know maybe there's an underlying condition that you could completely overlook if you're if you're not you know doing the appropriate clinical workup so so i think that's one aspect of it but then looking at you know study details if you want to develop your sort of scientific sorry should not be ringing of looking at you know how many subjects a lot of sports science research especially with a randomized control trial is is hard to get a lot of subjects it's a lot of work to recruit you guys know that better than anyone else so a lot of su- a lot of studies do have low subject numbers but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not a good study but understanding that that can impact the overall sort of median or outcomes and then looking at the population if it's a bunch of uh, male runners is that going to necessarily have the same impact to a, a female cyclist? In some conditions, yes; in some conditions, no. But I think understanding understanding your population is is important, and if the population is is similar to you or not, depending on what you're looking at with the gluten free, I would say that you know from a personal perspective, I would want to see some data on on female athletes, just because we know there's changes with hormones over the menstrual cycle that can then impact different GI symptoms. So I would look first with like, yeah, I want to see individual data on female subjects. I would look to see if the data or the study was a randomized control trial, also blinded and looking at how the, how the dietary control was done. And I think that's important for any dietary study because there's so much noise associated with dietary control that it's honestly, it's it's hard to, with any sort of nutrition study to have hundred percent dietary control, but studies that basically prepare, measure the food in accordance with somebody's body weight, et cetera, are going to be a better study design than, you know, one off of, Hey, come in and do this testing and have this bar with, or without gluten sort of thing. And then, yeah, looking at the, uh, at the, also the, the measurements that were done and trying to maybe learn a little bit more about if it's a biomarker, if they're using biomarkers and collecting, collecting blood. I mean, athletes uh, definitely tend to learn um, about, you know, iron and they'll learn more about certain biomarkers that apply to the, the endurance athlete population, especially if you're someone who does altitude training, et cetera. So I think also you can look at, yeah, some of the biomarkers that are used to measure the impact of, of a diet or of a, of a gluten free diet, if it's applicable to this study.
0: Okay, now that sounds good. And then the final part, I guess, is how that sort of fits into the bigger picture. Now, in this particular case, we've probably already come to the conclusion that maybe the gluten free diet, unless I have diagnosed celiac disease, mm-hmm. isn't necessarily going to help me. So maybe this is not such a great example in this case mm-hmm. because we probably don't need to even get to this point. We've sort of reached a mm-hmm. conclusion already. But let's say it was something else. As- particular supplement or something like that and actually they did look like there was some sort of mm-hmm. promising results how are you then thinking about fitting that into the overall bigger picture in terms of return on investment
2: yeah that's a great question so i usually will look at an athlete's yearly training plan and figure out when the best time is to test out this intervention and i'm all about testing stuff out i love trying new stuff with athletes and but it has to be done at an appropriate time and in a manner that fits into your priority list. If you're still a developmental rider, well, this supplement is probably not going to be your biggest return on investment. Just training and learning how to ride in the peloton is going to be, have a much more bigger return on investment for your performance. But I would any any intervention I would try, most likely, you know, one, talk to the coach to find a good point in time to trial whatever intervention. A lot are good, I would say great to test in the off-season or pick a time early on in the season to trial this supplement or strategy. It really depends on, on, on the supplement or strategy, but usually off-season or early season and try to mimic the conditions where this supplement is supposed to essentially work the best. So don't just randomly throw it in one day, but you know understand the physiology for how this supplement is supposed to work and try to make sure that you set it up so you're doing you're testing it. You're doing sort of an end of one case study on yourself to really figure out, you know, if, if it does have a beneficial effect, if there's any way you could measure something or even do your own little study where you're doing the same workout with your power meter, try to control your food before and after maybe the day before too. I think the more you can control the better you can get an individualized idea if this is working and try to remove some of the bias But I think the one thing to avoid is just tossing stuff in all the time without measuring anything and then possibly introducing stuff at the wrong time during your season. Or there's even, you know, there's a risk of overlooking like a clinical condition. There's a risk of a drug-nutrient interaction if you're, you know, taking supplements, one that are, you know, not necessarily tested, but just if you are taking a ton of zinc for some reason over a period of time that can interfere with your iron absorption. Taking a ton of supplements of course liver toxicity is an issue but that's I've never really come across that being an issue. And then, you know, even some strategies like, you know, fasted training if you're if you're doing that too much, too frequently at the wrong time of year, you could kind of unfuel yourself. So, I think any of these strategies work with your coach to make sure that you're testing them and then if you find they work, implementing at the right time in your yearly training plan.
0: Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then as you said the final step like if you can't answer any of those previous questions like you can't access the research or you can't yeah. understand it or whatever that's when getting professional advice might be really helpful and particularly when we think about some of these supplements you know you might pay I don't know $200 for a dietitian consult and you might go oh wow that's outrageous but yeah. 6 months of that supplement probably cost $400 and if oh, it's Taking that <laughs> supplement because you didn't need it yeah. then you've actually saved money by spending money
2: Absolutely. And then honestly, like, I always think about the psychological impact of a supplement too. And I'm all about taking, you know, using supplements strategically that, that work or might work. Absolutely. I'm definitely not like food only. There are a lot of places where supplements completely make sense. But if you are in the middle of your race season and you forget uh, your beta alanine, or you forget a new supplement you're taking, how is that going to psychologically affect you? You go to a race and you don't have supplement you usually take is that going to really mess with your head or are you able to be like you know work past it and still ride to your full capacity i think it's important to understand like that aspect of of supplements as well
0: yeah and if you don't understand what it is how it works or why you're taking it Mm -hmm. you probably shouldn't be
2: yeah yeah exactly exactly
0: awesome All right. Well, I think that's a really good place to finish on. So I'm going to pass back to Steph, and she's going to finish us off with our bonus round because you've sort of had a half bonus round with Dave, but you never had the full full version. So I'll hand over to Steph. Okay,
1: let's go. (laughs) So first thing that comes to mind after our chat is what's on the shopping list that you're currently in
2: that 24 hour waiting period for? Shopping list. Oh my goodness. Probably a windsurfer. I really want to start windsurfing this 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 summer. We live on a lake, and my family sails, but I don't really like sailing. It's it, the return on investment for sailing is a lot of setup for not that much excitement. <laughs> in my opinion, so I would really like windsurfers. I have a few on my various saved saved bookmarks. So that's on the twenty four hour, maybe more like twenty four days. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And if you could do anything other than
2: your current career, what would it be? Yeah, I'm probably in a way well on my way to being a crazy dog lady. That's my sort of alter ego career. I would love to have in my, I would love to basically run a massive kids center, orphanage type thing. That's like a mix of a high-end prep school, a Canadian sleepover camp. And then along with like a massive property for animals. So I could adopt all the human society animals and then the kids give the animals attention, vice versa. Someone would probably get bitten once a day, but I'd cross that bridge when I get there. But that's sort of my alter ear career (laughs) would be to run this amazing kid animal facility to make sure they all have the love and wonderful place to grow up that they deserve. I need a lot more money to do that though. I gotta, I gotta hit the stock market a lot better. (laughs)
1: and one of the things on your bucket list that you haven't yet done yeah
2: I would maybe I'll go with three here I'd like to go ski mountaineering in the Himalayas with my family my son is like I'm he's really like a pretty strong little skier and he'll he'll backcountry ski with us like crazy and he's yeah he's he's strong so I think he'll be he'll be a good ski buddy he already is a good ski buddy I'd like to have a pet monkey. My mom had one named Gandalf. She said he wasn't very good and he threw his poo everywhere, but I still think it would be amazing to have a pet monkey. And build my own cabin in the woods off the grid, of course, with my of my massive dog pack. So those would be three of the three bucket list things I haven't done.
1: <laughs> and what sporting event are you most looking forward to
2: in 2023? Yeah, my son's, my son's free ride skiing comps for sure. (laughs) They're local and I'm personally invested in them. So yeah, my kids, my kids skiing comps. And favorite motto in life? My favorite motto in life is don't get lame. And I think that's come with like being for over 40 now. And my husband and I, whenever we're like debating about, you know, doing something or going out, we're, we're like, don't get lame. Because you know, when you have kids and stuff, a lot of people get lame. So we have managed mm. to not get lame. But it takes that motto to keep us not That's lame.
0: Awesome. Well, you have to have some planning for your your estate with all the kids and the dogs, So the kids don't think you're lame.
2: <laughs> exactly. Hopefully not.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dana. It's been great to chat to you again. Hopefully this has given people a bit of an arsenal of, of tools or skills that they can try and apply when they see information online to try and work out whether it's relevant to them whether the information is reliable or not and i guess what sort of return on investment they're likely to get and ultimately whether it's worth investing their time and money in so thanks so much for your time and I'm sure we'll chat to you again soon
2: oh no thanks for having me it's always an honor to to connect with you guys and i always love keeping in touch with my australian buddies
0: yes absolutely
1: Awesome. Thank you very much, Dana. I'm going to hand it over to our to summarise. How can I decipher sports nutrition information?
0: Mm. Yeah, I'll keep it pretty brief because obviously we kind of summarised it during that session as well. But I guess, as Dana mentioned, there's been a massive increase in the amount of sports nutrition research over the last decade from something like you know 300 new papers or studies published a year to over 3000 now. I guess the first thing, you know, from, from our point of view as practitioners, no one can keep up with that volume. You know, even the, the top experts in the world can't keep up with the volume of research that's being published these days, and and that makes it really difficult. But as also, as Dana said, you know, the quality of that research has been diluted over time, and there is, is you know, an increasing amount of poor research that's published in poor academic journals. I guess the problem is for a, a non-academic is how would you know and how would you distinguish the the good research from the not so good research? So that that becomes tricky as well. So, you know, there's kind of a, a fire hose of information as we talked about with Tim back in episode six. But, you know, trying to, to sort the the good bits from the the not so good bits is becoming increasingly difficult. So that's making it harder for everyone. And I guess the other thing, as Dana said, is, you know, information is now being disseminated mostly through things like social media and infographics and, and, you know, abstracts where you can't download the full article. And a lot of the nuance, and the context around research, which is often where you can discern whether this is high quality information or research or not, or if it's even relevant to you, is lost in that oversimplification of, of message. Dane also mentioned that you know the true experts who really can understand and explain these nuances are often so busy doing the research or working directly with athletes in often in elite sport they don't necessarily have the time to have those conversations online and those that do you know are often the ones that don't always understand the nuances to the same extent because they're they're not working in that that research field there are some exceptions to that. She mentioned My Sports Science, which is Asker Jerkendrop's website. Uh, I know I've done a, a series of articles with Asker around sodium, for example, based on some of the research that I've done. He's done some stuff with Ricardo Costa around gut issues as well. There's a whole bunch of other ones. She mentioned the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, and I'd second that. Well, People got to go, well, Gatorade, aren't they pushing a barrow around sports drink? A lot of the stuff they have on their sports science exchange has got nothing to do with hydration or electrolytes or carbohydrate. I mean, they've got that stuff there as well, but they've got a whole bunch of stuff on a whole bunch of topics that are completely unrelated to their product range as well. And they're generally written by the scientists who are quite prominent in those fields from a research point of view, which is which is great. Um, Alex Hutchinson also he's a journalist but we've had him on the the podcast before when we talked about actually following Dana's last episode around continuous glucose meters and he's someone who's done a really good job over a long period of time now of um, you know and really digging into research and understanding it and producing really good journalistic content that helps explain some of this stuff in in layman's terms which is great and obviously you know Podcasts like this one, where we ask the experts and invite them on to to share that information, and you know, hopefully, ask good questions that that prompt them to give you know practical answers that people one can understand and two can can put into practice. And, and you know, usually uh, they do they do that usually on podcasts that are more designed for practitioners. But really, the reason we started this podcast was to get those same people that are often talking to practitioners to actually talk directly to. The listeners as as athletes as runners cyclists and triathletes rather than talking to other sports dietitians necessarily i think one of the other things to add into this conversation and you know dana talked about you know be careful of your own biases is you know being careful not to wrap your identity up with a particular dietary pattern or belief and you know you see this all the time on social media where someone's you know instagram handle is keto ken or vegan sally or something like that and i think you know you've literally tied up your identity with a pattern of eating and you know if that doesn't introduce bias into how you're going to filter information about keto diets or vegan diets or whatever it is i don't know what does and that also applies to to sport and training itself not just the the dietary part of it and you know your identity as an athlete as well is really important there and you know we've had warnings around that very recently from both bobby clay and tina muir on recent episodes that you know you you get caught up with your whole life and your sense of identity being related to your sport and your performance in sport and and that can really set you off on a on a path uh, from a mental health point of view that that it's not not healthy often. But I guess just to summarize that five-step process that Dana talked about for interpreting or deciphering information that you see online, I guess the first part was, you know, is this information actually relevant to my situation and is it actionable? And if the answer to, to that part is no, then really you can stop there. And, and don't even worry about that information. But if the answer is yes, obviously you'd then go on to look at the source of information. So thinking about the quality of that information, and I encourage people if you haven't to go back and listen to episode 6A with Tim Crow, because that's what he talked about there. You know, Dana mentioned obviously stories and anecdotes are very powerful, and there's always that, I forget the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of facts tell, but stories sell. And so, you know, social media and, and media more broadly, you're going to see stories more than you see information. And certainly whenever we do research in sports nutrition, I've done a study like this in my PhD around sodium and hydration, but others have done similar research about caffeine or around carbohydrate. What we find time and time and time again is that the vast majority of athletes out there get their information from other athletes. And so this is where the stories and the anecdotes and things tend to, to bounce around. But if the information is coming from a research study or an article that sort of quotes a research study, then you need to start looking at things like what type of research is it? And that's the bit where it's not always easy for non-scientists to kind of dig into that and, and really get a good handle on whether that research was done well or not, and it's, it's valid research. Uh, As Dana mentioned, looking at your own biases and how you're influenced could this cloud your judgment with this particular information that's coming in? So if your handle is Keto Ken and this information talking about vegan diets, you're probably going to view it through a very different lens to Vegan Sally, for example. The other thing, I guess, with this, I was just thinking about this afterwards. You know, will this increase or reduce any potential placebo effect from? that information or supplement or dietary pattern or whatever it is. And that can work both ways. Sometimes it can be, you know, you have an ultra belief in this particular thing. And so you get a placebo effect, but you can also get a nocebo effect, which is the opposite of a placebo where it's a detrimental effect. And so that can come when you're very skeptical about a piece of information and potentially overly skeptical because of your, your biases as well. And that's where it might be good to, to step back and try and get a bit of an objective opinion on this from someone who's a bit removed emotionally from the particular information or debating question. Uh, if it is a, a research study, then you know, looking at the study details are important. You know Things like how many people are in the study. Are they male or female? Um, are they Olympians, complete novices or somewhere in between? Are they 20 years old or 45 years old? And looking at that combination of factors, is that relevant to your particular situation? So the acronym I mentioned was PICO, population, so who the people are in the study, intervention, so what did they actually do, comparison, was there a genuine control or placebo group, and then the outcome, what were they actually measuring the outcome in terms of, and is that outcome relevant to you and the outcomes that you're trying to get in your sport? And then finally, return on investment. So will this information or strategy fill gaps that you have in your own performance or health? Uh, And are they worth the investment for the outcome? And then, you know, really, should this be a priority for you or not? Or is it just information? Oh, that's nice to know and it kind of passes through. And ultimately, if you're unsure about any of this, how to decipher any of those questions, then that's where, you know, involving a professional and and getting some personalised advice can be really useful. So Dana, you know, obviously then used the, the example of gluten-free diets. Uh, I won't go into the details about that, but, um, you know, that's just one example of information that you could see online that, that may give you information one way or the other. And ultimately, if if you're not sure whether that information is going to be useful for you, you can do a bit of a trial on yourself. But as Dana said, you know, trying to collect some objective data where possible, and trying to navigate your own biases is is really important. So yeah, you know, if it is something like a gluten-free diet and you're looking at gut symptoms, you know, try and keep a symptom diary to see if it's actually genuinely changing symptoms or whether it's a bit of a placebo effect something like that. If you ride a bike and you've got a power meter, then you know you can look at power numbers over a standardized you know climb or A set on the ergo or something like that. If you're a runner, it might be looking at pace or RPE data, and the same for swimming in the pool as well, to try and get a sense of, you know, stepping back objectively and having a look at that data. You know, I've made this change. Has it actually helped or not? And whether it's something that I should continue. And that might also depend on things like cost. Is it easy? Is it inconvenient or convenient? all that kind of stuff uh, ultimately to decide whether implementing that strategy, that supplement that bit of information is is worthwhile or not in the long term.
1: Awesome and like you said, there's so much information coming through it's difficult just for researchers to keep up with it all and that's why you might even see some dietitians and/or sports you know dietitians, focusing in a particular area simply because they know they cannot be an expert in everything and you know for myself you know my my choice is to focus in the space of the gastrointestinal area and you know more particularly as well endurance because I know I'm I just can't keep up with all the information in all the different areas so Keep that in mind as well and don't be scared to seek out professional advice and support. That's what we're here for as well. And uh, also throw us those questions that you've got so we can keep going with this podcast and and making it relevant to all uh, of our listeners. But Al, we're up to episode 62 and uh, what are we going to be talking about in episode sixty-two?
0: Yeah, so I think this kind of follows on nicely, actually, from the discussion we've just had with Dana about you're know, particularly looking at that return on investment and is it worth it. So what we're actually going to do is is take a look at, I guess, some of the common strategies that we could use in sports nutrition in running, cycling, and triathlon. And actually look at, well, how much benefit do you potentially actually get from these? So we'll dig into the research and and kind of pull out a, a bit of a a list of, you know, this strategy gives you, you know, this kind of benefit versus this strategy gives you that kind of benefit. And some of them aren't always easy to quantify. And we'll we'll talk about that as we go through. But we'll try and pick out, you know, some examples of where you can quantify this stuff. And hopefully that'll give you a bit of a sense of, you know, you can put all this effort or spend all this much money, but what is it actually going to get me? from a performance point of view and and therefore again in the biggest picture is that worth it compared to other things that you could be spending your time and effort on because you can't do everything all the time you know compared to buying those new shoes or compared to you know spending a few more hours a week training or getting a coach if you don't currently have a coach or yeah you know, there's all sorts of things that you could do and nutrition is part of that but where does that fit in terms of all of those things, and, and how do you kind of prioritise things when you've got limited time and resources?
1: Exactly, yep, yep. Um, and that could relate to, yeah, if you're, you know, been thinking about this particular supplement, but you're not thinking about other areas of your nutrition, yeah, is that supplement really worth that cost compared to if you can maybe do some tweaks in, you know, your, your diet as such? So we'll, yeah. we'll get into that. Uh, And so uh, just a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you do listen on one of these platforms and have 30 seconds to, to spare, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review and those that do leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. They're with us. And remember also that there's now 61 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020, and if you would like to be notified every time that a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on, and if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition uh, issue for their training or racing, and you've heard it on the podcast, you may like to, to let them know. Otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and see you in a couple of weeks' time.